0: All right, guys, we are, we are going to jump in. If you have your handouts, we are going to start on the nine marks of a healthy church uh, page, which is a single page front and back, and we're going to go a little out of order because we want to emphasize church membership first, which is on the back. So that's number six on the top there. <clears throat> Scott, could you uh, open us in prayer sure. and then we'll jump in?
1: Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for uh, today, we're thankful for just uh, beautiful weather that we've been able to enjoy uh, recently, and it looks like another beautiful day today. Thankful for your mercies that are new uh, each and every morning, and we're thankful for this chance we can gather here and discuss things uh, about our church and uh, what we emphasize, and we're thankful for all of those who have come today to, to uh, just listen and learn about our church and uh, just encouraged by that, and uh, just pray that it would be an edifying time, that we would be built up as we read Your Word and as we talk about these very important matters. And I pray that You'd be honored during this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you all again
0: for for coming on a Saturday morning, especially if you had an all-night shift uh, last night. Um, (laughs) I still can't believe that. And just a couple kind of housekeeping things. Uh, If you have already sent in your testimony, then you're good to go. Uh, If you haven't yet, just be aware that we need your written testimony to be sent in through our church website. So nacathens.org, I think it's slash membership, and <clears throat> you can just find it on our on our homepage. If you fill out the your kind of your testimony, we're looking for three paragraphs. Kind of, be, if if you can remember, Jerry was how old were you when you were converted? Uh, Six. Oh Jerry doesn't remember his pre-converted days very well, but if you can remember your pre-converted days, I certainly remember mine. You can give a first paragraph on life before you met Jesus, how you came to know Jesus is paragraph two, and then how your life has been changed now that you know the Lord Jesus, and then uh, give a brief uh, uh, explanation of the gospel message, and then send that in. And I I don't ever want people to feel like they they didn't know this was coming. So part of what we do is we, we vote as a congregation on new members who are coming in, the way the process works is the elders will, will talk to these individuals, uh, we may meet with them, listen to their testimony, we read their testimony, we meet with them in this kind of a environment, and then we, kind of a, we approve of certain people, we, we approve people's testimonies, and then we have it emailed to the, all the members of the church. Just, just know ahead of time if you are about to write yours. Just know that this this testimony will be sent to the whole church. So if there's anything that you want to leave out, or something is too personal or too sensitive, you don't have to include that. Don't don't feel pressure. You can leave that out uh, in any sort of detail. Also, if you've already sent your testimony in and you go, hey. Uh, If this is going to the church, I'd like to change something I said, no problem, no problem at all. Just let us know. Uh, We need those in uh, certainly by the end of this month. So we would send those out early October. Uh, Our members get to read over those testimonies, and then they will vote. uh, I think it's the third Sunday of October. We'll have a members meeting and vote on that. And then the fourth Sunday of October, which I don't have my my calendar. I think it's October 22nd, maybe, Uh, fourth Sunday of October. Does that sound right? I may be off on that. Yeah,
2: I can look it up real quick.
0: That, we'll, we'll have new members join on that Sunday. Yes. If you haven't, most of you, have, that is right, October yep. 22nd. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have also um, at least one person is getting baptized that Sunday who has not been baptized yet as a, as a believer. If you haven't been baptized as a believer, uh, if, you, if you were baptized before your genuine conversion, please let us know if, you're, if you'd like to be baptized again uh, on that Sunday, October 22nd. How it works. Again, most of you have seen this, maybe you've all seen this, but uh, at the beginning of the service on that Sunday, uh, at the end of announcements, which I always do on Sunday m- uh, afternoon, not morning, uh, Sunday afternoon, uh, we, we, everyone comes up who's joining and you make a line in front of the pulpit, and then uh, we go through the five membership questions, uh, about uh, which I, I can send those to you guys as well, uh, which, which are largely covered in what we're talking about today. So we're going to go ahead and jump in here with number six. And if you have your your Bible handy, go ahead and open to Hebrews 13. just going to have that ready. And I may put that on the screen as well as we go. But Hebrews 13.
1: And Scott, could you read number six for us? Sure. Biblical understanding of church membership. Church membership is a privilege and a responsibility and needs to be regarded as such. People should only be members if they are dedicated to the church in attendance, prayer, service, and giving. To allow people to become and remain members for sentimental or other unbiblical reasons makes light of membership and may even be dangerous. Yeah, so I'll just start on this and I want to hear from these guys on this uh, point.
0: Uh, I say this every time we do this meeting class, this prospective meetings class. Uh, I'm not trying to be really sarcastic. I actually mean this seriously, which is the worst part, but... um, I really do think that we have a better grasp on membership in like a rec league soccer uh, team than we sometimes do in a local church. And what I mean is, if you're going to be involved in sort of middle school rec league soccer, there's probably going to be tryouts, right? And you, you, you get approved to be on the team. And th- is there a level of commitment involved when you're joining the team? Yeah, right? There's a there's, there's degree of responsibility. And then does the, does the coach know exactly who the players are on the team? is every member of the team written down on a list. There's a roster right somewhere with everyone on it. And if, if they have practice, who's expected to be there? Everyone who's a member of the team is expected, unless there's an emergency, you're, you're expected to be there. And if a person re- refuses to come to practice week in and week out, are they likely to be playing in the game the next time? Probably not, and, and on and on. So there, there's a kind of mutual responsibility. If your friend's not showing up for practice, are you gonna be like, hey, hey man, like, where are you? Like, why, why, why couldn't you come? Well, I was sick. Okay, that's fine. But I, I just, I didn't feel like coming today. I just slept in. I didn't feel like coming to practice. you are like, wait, wait. Like, we have a a mutual accountability here. Like, we've got it. This is part of being on the team. We've got a commitment we've made. We've made a commitment to the coaches, to each other. The coaches and and we as teammates need to hold each other accountable. And if someone just refuses to come, eventually, I think, they'll be, uh, after a certain number of steps, they'll probably be removed from the team at a certain point. And so we have a pretty high degree of accountability with rec league soccer. And yet, think about sometimes churches. You can attend a church the first Sunday you're there, you can join the church, right? You walk down the aisle at the end, you meet the pastor, you join that first Sunday. You're, you're a member of the church and you, don't, you never come back. And suddenly, five years later, your name is still on the membership roster. No one's called anyone. No one's asked where you are. The person may be not even a believer anymore based on their own profession of faith. But um, so we, we want to we elevate uh, the, the importance of biblical membership. Any, any opening comments about the importance of accountability and the, 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 how this is a good thing that we have an accountability in the local church? I think we
3: certainly, oops. I got you. I don't think we certainly wouldn't want anyone to join that didn't see, that 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 doesn't sound good to, if that sounds scary, then I don't think that's the, uh, this wouldn't be the the right place to join just because um, we would want everybody that wants that kind of accountability, and we feel like we've talked about this a lot, that it is a mutual, we are committing to you just like you are committing to the church, and so um you know for oversight for uh discipline if it would come to that for whatever for um just the the insights and so um it is i like what mark's saying there um it's a bigger deal than i'm afraid you know we make it in in our um kind of culture maybe
2: it's also i think it gets at the attitude um you know you mentioned rec league soccer i see this a lot Uh, with students and like their club and travel teams. Like everything else plays second fiddle to those travel teams and those club ball. I mean, they just do. Um, Church, family, whatever, like that is the priority. And so when it comes to church, we need to have that kind of expectation that this is the one thing we're not going to do without every week. Even if we have to give up other stuff, the church is the one thing we're going to strive to not miss, to not forsake. And again, obviously there's exceptions to that. But that just speaks to, um, you know, what does the Bible say about, as we're going to see these other things, true conversion and all that, but how does that affect our view of the local church? It, I mean, it if it is the people of Jesus, it is the His bride, it is His body uh, that we're a part of, um, then we have to be a part of what's going on in a local church. We have to.
1: Yeah, I would just say it's a, it's a privilege and responsibility. It's just funny because talking to Olivia on the way here, I said, Mark's going to tell the rec League soccer story. I I know it's coming uh, (laughs) here every time. It's a a great (laughs) illustration. That's why we
3: start with number six, (laughs) so then we can go directly to rec League. Just
1: jump right into the the soccer team story. It's a great story, but the privilege of responsibility, it is a responsibility, and there's weight. We're going to read Hebrews 13, 5, weighty, but the privilege, I I don't want to, I always want to lift up the privilege aspect of it. Like, what a privilege to be able to fold your life into uh, the life of the local believers, like get involved. And like Mark and I both, we first became Christians, did not view the local church properly. I viewed it as more like consumeristic, like you would jump around at all kinds of different churches. I I would would go, yeah, I would go to like hear the preaching. I love my dad's preaching, but I wouldn't, didn't fold my life in. And when you do that, you're just missing out. I mean, you're robbing people, your gifts too, but you're you're being robbed from being encouraged by other people. But at, at North Avenue Church, I think just folding your life into this church, like all the years we've been going now, uh, seven and a half. Is that where, is that where we're mm-hmm. at? And just when our church, I tell the story almost every time to like Mark's soccer story. But when we our church first started, we had discussion groups. We'd go every Thursday, same group of people, basically eight to ten people or so, ten or twelve members at hours. And got to know all these different young couples, and after, I don't know, just a few months, I remember at the beginning of that discussion, I looked around the room, and I, I said to myself, I genuinely love the people in this room, and I knew that they genuinely loved me, and what a privilege just to be able to rub shoulders with people, pray with them, like you, you're praying for a, I remember praying for Jose for a job. Jose Rodriguez is gonna speak, I guess, Lord willing, coming up, and then to God provide this job after weeks and weeks, and we all get to celebrate. Mm-hmm. Uh, just You can just multiply it out. What a privilege to, 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 to fold your life into it. That's what you want but you're, you're missing out if you don't. Well, going off that point, uh, I've also, here's another illustration that Scott
0: probably knew I was about to say. Uh, it, I, I often compare it to how we think about uh, restaurants. So this is the consumer mindset, right? So when, you, when you're picking a restaurant on a Sunday afternoon or on whatever day of the week it is, I guess at our church Sunday afternoon, you probably can't, it doesn't work. But uh, if you're picking a restaurant on a, on a Friday night, and you go, well, you know, tonight I'm feeling like Italian, I'm feeling like Mexican, I'm feeling like whatever it might be. And it's just based on your feeling in the moment, whatever kind of people agree on. You go, okay, my feelings say I want this kind of food, so I go there tonight because that's what I want tonight. And if some if you spill your drink on the table, you're probably not gonna try to clean it up very much. You're, if There's a big mess, you wait for the waiter to come and you say, I'm sorry, but then the waiter is the paid person, they, they clean up the mess. You don't take responsibility, right? You're a consumer. You're not there to contribute to the well-being of the establishment. You're there to benefit from it and to sort of consume the benefits around you, and it's all based on feelings and where I want to go. I was treating church like that in my late college years, which is ironic. This is, I tell my students this at school, and they look at me like, that's bad. I'm like, yes, it is. I was training for the ministry, and I wasn't going to church every Sunday. You're like, that's bad. Yes, it is. Yes, that is very... I was in Bible college, and I, was, I would skip church. I would, go to, I would go to... I can think of four or five churches I was going to at the time. I would go to this church in Athens. I'd go to another church in Athens. I want to hear the preaching here. I want to hear this, that. I, I know these people here. I went there. I mean, it was just... I look back with genuine shame, and I, I didn't know what I was missing out on until after I graduated, and I committed myself to a single local church, and it was life-changing. It was absolutely life-changing when, when I did that. and I, That's one of my greatest regrets from college. But the, the restaurant consumer mentality, it's like, I wanna hear this. The worship band's great here. I love the preacher over here. I love these people over this other church. And it, it, it becomes entirely based on my feelings on that Sunday. And uh, that's very different from committing to a local body and contributing to the people, loving one another, serving one another, getting to know each other, having deep relationships where we can, we can care for each other uh, well. Anything else, Jerry? So Hebrews 13, 17, uh, it's also on your screen, but you can turn to it in your Bible. This is one of those verses where the more you stare at it, the more you see in it, and it says here, so, so people often say there's no verse that commands you to be a member of a church. And I would say, okay, you're right, there is no verse that commands you to be a member of a church, but the, the New Testament everywhere assumes you are a member of a church. Here's a verse, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So do you see here, obey your leaders. Now, let me just turn my pin on. The, the obey here cannot refer to every leader at every church, can it? You can't submit to the pastor of some church in Illinois right now. It's just, I mean, you're not committed. You're not, so you have to have specific leaders that you yourself are called to follow the leadership of. So that assumes membership in a local church with local leaders. And it says, submit to them. So there's a specific group of, of leaders that you're, that you're accountable to, to, to follow. But then also it says they are keeping watch over not everyone's soul in the world. The pastors are keeping watch over your souls, the, the coaches of the, of the specific team members, right? There's a specific group of souls. And this is genuinely a sobering thought for, for us on the stage here, that we have to give an account for mm-hmm. how we shepherded the members of our church. That is a sobering, weighty thought, um, and it says, let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. But this, this has to be a reference to local church leaders and local church members uh, who have a, a, a accountability with each other. Thoughts on this?
2: Well, it goes along with uh, Hebrews 10 that we're all familiar with, um, Hebrews 10, uh, 25 or 24 and 25, when he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, um, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You can't meet together with every church everywhere on a Sunday. And so coupled with what you just quoted in Hebrews 13, um, it seems like there is a specific group of people that you meet with regularly with a specific leadership that's watching over, guiding, guarding, teaching, and all of that. Um, And the picture becomes pretty clear, I think.
1: Anything else with that I mean it's just weighty it's a weighty thing. I mean for us in particular that like we 're going to have to stand before God and give an account for the specific members of our church, so it's just like that's who we are responsible to before God it's very, very weighty. but uh, I just think I think of my, our dad we've told the story before too. our dad was a faithful minister, pretty much our whole ch- childhood. And the church that he was at at the beginning, they had a massive roll of members, it like huge, but they were not even coming at all. Like It was hundreds. hundreds and hundreds of people, and only a few hundred came. And so what my dad did was he systematically was going through and just removing people that were no longer even around to getting rid of them, because my dad is taking this passage very, very seriously. He's going to have to stand before God for all the members. So the church got on, they got in the, some kind of article, the most the biggest loss of membership like in a single year my dad had at their church and he people lost were, like 3 or 400 members know, in one year <laughs> but again it's because he's thinking i am specifically accountable for all these members so he wants to be very certain of who is actually the members of our church yeah,
0: when you make a phone call and the person died 20 years ago and they're a member you know at the church you're like wait that or, no one's heard of this person for the last 30 years at this church you're like they've been a member for the last 30 years no one knows who they are anymore so my dad said okay i cannot be i'm responsible for whoever's name is on the list and if i have never if i have no idea who these 300 people are it's not going to work that so they had to work through systematically and try to find where they were and get rid of a lot of people uh, because they weren't, they weren't around anymore. So number seven on your list here, biblical church discipline. Uh, it, this has got to be one of the more foreign ideas to, to a lot of people today in our culture. Uh, Greg, can you read number seven?
2: Yeah. Number seven, biblical church discipline. Discipline guides church membership. The church has the responsibility to judge the life and teaching of the membership since they can negatively impact the church's witness of the gospel. Leadership needs to be firm in discipline, as this is an expression of love to the congregation.
0: So turn with us to Matthew 18. I, I think that there's two important passages, at least on this topic, that we should look at. Matthew chapter 18 And we, of course, in no way take the words of Jesus as being more important than the rest of Scripture, so we're not red letter in the sense that the red letters are more important than the black letters. They're all God's Word. But still, I love the fact that Jesus is the one who is so clear on this issue. (laughs) It's like it it comes straight from Him. Uh, And so, Matthew 18, Jesus speaks so clearly. Uh, We'll start in verse 12, and here's what it says. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray... Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Let me just pause there. We've got a church of a little over 100 members, so we're close to this, right, 100 sheep. And here's what Jesus says. Doesn't matter if your attendance is going up, doesn't matter if new people are joining, if one member who's been around for a while is drifting away, Jesus says, you don't just be happy that, oh, we got more members coming in or the, the, the attendance may be going up. No, 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 you've got a responsibility for the one. Uh, Right now, if there's one string, one's no longer coming to church, or one is embracing maybe something that's not biblical, we've got to love them enough to go after them because the least loving thing I can do is what? let them go. Just let them go. If they're drifting into something that's not good for them, verse 13, and if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Uh, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So the goal of church discipline is restoration. It's salvation. It's not condemnation. It's not mainly meant to be judgmental at the end of the day, although there is a judgment in the, in the process. The goal is what? To bring the sheep back to the fold, right? The goal is to bring the sheep back. Uh, verse 19. No, I'm sorry. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, and here's the three-step process. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, and this is Jesus again, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Um, Jerry, why is there a three-step process like this? What what is Jesus getting at here?
3: Yeah, his thing is so important. And, you know, certainly as we pray for someone who may fall into this, you it it's a we want it to be a long process, right? You'd want the Holy Spirit to to work on them. And and like you said, we're looking for confession and repentance, and we're not at all, it's not never mean spirited. It's out of a deep Love and and it's out of a sincere hurt and oh it's painful it's painful when uh, a church has to do that but it's just it's just so important that um that we do in order to keep purity in the church you've talked Mark I'd love to hear like who all wins when you do church discipline because a lot of people lose when you don't
0: yeah and I think we'll see this just as clearly in First Corinthians five in a second so that there's you're loving it's an act of love, church discipline. Most people think of it as judgmental or it's whatever, but it's, it's an act of love for a lot of different people, like everybody involved. Number one, is it an act of love toward the one sheep that is straying towards destruction? Mm. Yes, because it's, a, it's like a last-ditch effort to win that person back to Christ. So it's actually the most loving thing you can do to someone who's caught up in serious sin. Number two, it's most loving for the other members of the church. Why would that be? Because if, if, if unbiblical divorce happens and no one does, says anything... If boyfriends and girlfriends are sleeping together and no one says anything, if someone's getting drunk every weekend at parties and everyone knows about it and no one says anything, what does that tell the other members of the church? Not a big deal, right? It's just like if with my kids. If, if Mike is misbehaving and I, we don't discipline him, what does Molly think? I can, I can go off the rails too. I can do the same thing Mike is doing, it doesn't matter. So the, the discipline toward the one is a warning to all the others. First uh, Timothy five says, if an elder's in sin, rebuke him in front of all that the rest may stand in fear. Like it, it's, it's a loving act that shows the seriousness of sin to all everyone else. Number three, it's loving to the watching world. Uh, I don't mean that the world's going to like what we're doing, but it does set God's standard. Remember, what's the one, number one accusation we get? The church the is hypocrisy. full of yep. hypocrites. Well, this is Jesus' way of removing genuine hypocrites, like full-blown hypocrites, are meant to be removed from memberships to guard the reputation of Christ in the world. So it's loving to the world, it's loving to the members, it's loving to the straying individual. It's the most loving thing you can do. It it involves tears, it involves involves grief, it's not something we enjoy doing, but it is a severe mercy and it's meant for the good of everybody involved.
2: Well, it's, it starts with just the relationships that we have. I mean, we, we know this kind of instinctively, I think, in North Ave at least. But, like, you know, the, the whole process of church discipline, you know, of confronting someone who's in their sin, that starts just in our, our everyday relationships with folks in this church. And, mm-hmm. you know, more often than not, that's, it's not going to go any further than that. Like that, that first step, someone has done something, there's a fault, there's some sin. You just say, hey, look, you know, I saw this, you said this, you did this. You know, that wasn't godly. Like, you need to, you know, you need to consider that. And it's, oh, yeah, you know, by God's grace, I repent. And that's it. And then that's as far as it goes. But it's, you know, the the full process comes along when that one-on-one, like, you can't get anywhere with it. And you're like, look, I've done everything I can to try to help this brother or sister, you know, see this activity or this this attitude as just sinful and and, and bad for them, bad for the church, they won't respond to me. Maybe, you know, let's get a few more and, and you know, try as a, as a team to try to lovingly convince them. I mean, it, it's each process you get there because you don't, you've exhausted the other options. It's not mm-hmm. like, man, we can't wait to get to the church and, and vote on this. It's like, we don't want it to get to the church. Mm-hmm. That's the last thing, that's the last place we want this to go. And I mean, you know, this, this process of one and then several more, like th- this can take place over months. Oh, yeah. over many months, as you know, I mean, if, if you've ever had someone who's struggling with something and, and they're not wanting to see it, like, you keep talking to them, you keep talking to them, like, you don't give up after just one try, you keep going after them, Um, and then, you know, again, when that process seems like, man, I just can't get anywhere, you get some other people involved and together you try to do it and you hope that works, because you don't want to, like, I, it, it. It it's necessary sometimes, but it it is the last thing we want to do is to have right. to bring this before the church. Mm-hmm
0: the person who delights in it in some sort of weird way doesn't need to be doing church discipline. The person who finds a kind of joy in it or self-righteousness in it, that is absolutely antithetical to what Jesus is after in this passage. Wouldn't
3: you say, I like what you're saying there, Greg, wouldn't you say that it's that when we go back to six, church membership, um, if we're all doing our job in that, you would think that it would um, not get there. That's Mm -hmm. That's a huge part of it is we're loving one another well, we're going to hold each other accountable, in that's why we have family groups or, you know, Bible studies together, so that there really is good accountability um, before that. And so, really, the only one who is finally church-disciplined through the, all three of those is one who truly is proving that they're, they're not a believer and they don't want to repent. And let me just,
0: just to flesh out, because you might be wondering, what kinds of sins are we talking about? We're not saying if you ever hear someone gossip, we're going to go into church discipline, and we're going. To, that's not what we're saying. We're talking about public, willful, scandalous sins. We're talking about again drunkenness, uh, sexual morality that's that's obvious. A boyfriend and girlfriend living together, uh, homosexual behavior, those kinds of things. But also, there's a belief. There's a belief factor that I want to mention. This gets sometimes not as much attention. Obvious heresy. So if you deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus, you would go into church discipline because that's not. You can't be a Christian and deny that. If you reject the Trinity, if you believe Jesus is the greatest created being of God, like a Jehovah's Witness or something, that would be a heresy. But let me also add something more maybe uh, relevant to right now. If a member of our church said, you know what, I'm now pro-choice. I think that abortion is a, is a, is a, is a good thing. I, I think that I, I, I'm in favor of abortion. That, that would be a, a matter of church discipline. Also, if someone said, I think that same-sex marriages are biblically legitimate, and I think that that should be something we support and we, we, we allow in our church, and that's okay, even if the person's not practicing those things, even the belief that those things, those basic issues, are are, are that way, we would also uh, begin a process of church discipline even there. So just keep in mind, it's it's serious doctrinal error, like not like we disagree on some minor issue, but those
3: serious doctrinal errors or um, uh, major behavioral. Could issues. you talk about someone moving toward divorce too, because yes. that I think that's important. Yeah, if
0: if a couple so. We believe that the biblical grounds for divorce, we're not saying you need to get a divorce in this situation, but you're at least allowed to get a divorce in the case of serious sexual morality. So like adultery, if that happens in the marriage, God forbid, but if that happens in the marriage, uh, the husband or wife who did not commit adultery is allowed by Jesus to divorce their spouse. We wouldn't say that's the first thing we'd recommend. We recommend reconciliation, if at all possible. That's, I think, usually, uh, I mean, that that would be a wonderful thing. If that's not possible, then divorce is allowed. The other thing would be if you're married to an unbeliever, uh, in other words, if a couple is non-Christians, one of them becomes a Christian after they're married, and the unbelieving spouse abandons the believer and wants to leave, you're allowed to let that person leave you, and I believe you're allowed to remarry in that case. So with those exceptions aside, uh, we believe divorce is uh, n- is not uh, biblical. And so we, we believe that if someone is seeking a divorce without biblical grounds, that is serious sin, and that would also issue for church discipline. Uh, we would want instead to work on biblical reconciliation if at all possible. Um, uh, so. Jerry, anything on that? Mm. Let let me just finish the text up here, verse 18. Jesus says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, so notice the on earth and in heaven, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, there's agreement on earth, heaven is agreeing with earth when the church properly exercises church discipline. If we are doing what Jesus says, Jesus in heaven agrees with what's happening on earth. The loosing and binding, there's a correspondence between heaven and earth. Again, I say to you, if two uh, of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Again, on earth, it parallels in heaven over and over again here. This verse is so often, I think, slightly misused. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, uh, there am I among them. So the, the in my name here is referring to church discipline. This is, it's not mainly a verse about a prayer meeting where there's only two people there and they say, hey, Jesus, I mean, Jesus is with us no matter where we are. That's true. He's with us to the end of the age. But this verse is often misused to refer to a small prayer meeting or something. I'm like, this is actually about removing someone from membership in a church. And Jesus is saying, hey, when two or three of the witnesses gather together and confirm this person needs to be removed, Jesus, I'm in agreement. Heaven is with you. I'm with you when you're doing that. I I am in full agreement with what you're doing if it's it's carried out uh, biblically. Let's flip to 1 Corinthians 5 to your right. First Corinthians chapter five. Acts, Romans, first Corinthians, chapter five. And I may interrupt you a little bit, but can you start reading there, Scott, verse one?
1: Sure, First, first Corinthians five, verse one. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Just pause there. Look at that last sentence. Let him who has done this uh, be removed from among you.
0: You see the phrase removed from among you. Does that include a certain group of members among you? A group of specific members of the local church in Corinth and he is being removed from that group. He, that's Again, that, that only makes sense if there's church membership along with church mm-hmm. discipline. You see how they go together there? Okay, verse four, or is it three?
1: three. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So just stop there. The goal is what?
0: That his spirit would be saved. The goal is to bring the sheep back to the fold. It's not ultimately condemnation. Jerry, what are we seeing here when it says you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? Of the flesh,
3: yeah, you know. Well, again, our our goal is repentance, and uh, certainly sin is a hundred percent of the time destructive. And so, once someone is uh, committed to continue that sin without repentance, God's um, you know wrath really or his judgment is on them, and then they, what Lord willing, we would sure hope and pray that they're convicted and then they're saved in the day of the Lord. That's that's the goal. So once again, that's the goal of all church, this one.
1: Yes. Verse six, uh, Scott. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Verse six, do you see that phrase I underlined on the screen? A little leaven leavens the whole lump.
0: You see how it's loving to the church body? that this person be dealt with a certain way because if they're not dealt with what's going to happen to the leaven of their sin, it's going to infect the whole lump. It's going to spread through the whole church. And I mean, I think we could all probably tell stories of, of, of sad stories of how this can happen in a church, but this is, again, a loving act for the whole, uh, the whole local church.
1: Verse nine. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty, of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you." So Again, this is only for people who call themselves Christians. I'll just say this. This is a sad
0: situation that we've had to deal with at our church recently. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had a member of our church who Jerry and I especially knew really well for years. Uh, She uh, stopped attending church and for, I mean, I'm talking about stopped attending church now for multiple years. And we've reached out to her over and over again. And the last word I got from her, uh, which is very sad to me, she's probably in her mid-twenties, she said, I have deconstructed my faith and I no longer consider myself to be a Christian. Uh, So. We don't, we don't actually exercise church discipline for a person who doesn't claim to be a Christian. This is only, it's only for those who bear the name of brother, who call themselves Christians. She sadly, I mean, it's, it's really a sad situation. She no longer calls herself a sister in Christ. So we are not going to exercise church discipline. We're simply gonna remove her name from the list because she's really removed herself by, by, by no longer professing faith in Christ. So she's not gonna undergo the three steps of church discipline. She's just removed herself by no longer professing uh, faith in Christ. But notice again, verse 12. You see this, this is in, in, important. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And then purge the evil person from among you. Do, do you see how it's assuming something? There's an inside to church and there's an outside. And listen, you, being inside a church, you're, you're not inside a church just because you attend a church. An atheist could attend a church for five years. That does not make the atheist a member of the church. That does not make them inside the church. Attendance does not make you a member. Uh, your own personal thought that I, I call this my church doesn't make it your church automatically. It has to be a two-way commitment between the church and the individual. It's a two-way handshake to commit to join, and you become an insider in the church, and then uh, through church discipline, someone is put uh, outside the church. Any
1: other thoughts on this topic? I just think we have to see it as loving, like mm-hmm. we have to. And I just think that if we've said this before, if any of us were in some kind of sin, we don't want to just be left. We want someone to come pursue us and bring us back. Like that is the loving thing to do. I think about that story with Piper, you probably remember it better than I do. Uh, she, this was a missionary daughter, I think, where she was married, she, mm-hmm. was having, she was committing adultery. And Piper got in her face and just said, like if you continue down this path, like you're headed for hell, you're headed for destruction. And that warning, that word, that loving correction that was hard to do, turned her around. Mm-hmm. And Piper said that she, every year at Christmas time, she writes him a thank you note at Christmas time. I mean, can you imagine if Piper just said, you can go? Like if I have if my son was heading for like a pit of poisonous snakes, and I just say, just go ahead over there, Michael, it's fine. No, like the loving thing is, to this is like a temporal thing. Like he's going to get bitten. I mean, it's much more severe if someone's headed for destruction. The loving thing is to go after them, and to and to pursue them. And Piper did, and that she gives a thank you. You know, every. I mean, that's just a moving thing. You, and then it's loving to the church. I mean, just we got to see this as it's, the, it's counterculture. Yes, but man, this is it's loving.
3: Yeah, though all of their eternity is at stake. Yeah. We cannot be instant gratification yeah. by just saying oh, it's easier to stick our head in the sand when this is at stake. I mean, this is somebody's soul. Mm-hmm. So and
0: it, I, I, just I'll mention from Baptist history. Okay, you you. This is probably it's, not what you came here to hear, okay? But, but if you look at Baptist history, uh, Gregory Wills, professor at, I used to be at Southern Seminary, he wrote a book about Georgia Baptist history. It's a fascinating book, it, it really is actually an interesting book. Uh, it doesn't sound like it would be, but um, I think it's called Democratic Religion or something. Yes. But um, it's a great, he, he basically deals with this pre-Civil War America, past the Civil War into our past century. But th- this, is, this is amazing in the book. I mean, I really couldn't believe it. Because Baptists in the last 100 years, okay, haven't been great on church discipline. Like, go back to the 1950s and 60s, it was barely happening, okay? It was a very rare thing. Well, if you look at the 1800s pre-Civil War in Georgia, this, this is mind-boggling, uh, the, the statistic was two to three percent of the members of Baptist churches across the state, two to three percent, under, underwent some degree of church discipline annually, two to three percent of the members annually, and then two percent of the members uh, were excommunicated annually. Baptist church. It's just amazing. If you have a hundred people, two a year get excommunicated. That was the average. And uh, there were quotes from Baptist pastors then who said, when church discipline leaves a church, Jesus leaves with it. Uh, some people would say, if a church doesn't practice church discipline, it can't be a true church. So you had all kinds of different things that were stated uh, that were that are pretty amazing. And then after the Civil War, sadly, it sort of dropped out of popularity. But uh, I think there's been a reawakening of this in, in recent decades.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So let's grab our sheet here. Uh, Biblical Obligations of Elders and Members at North Avenue Church. And Scott, could you
1: start reading through it? I'm going to turn the air down.
2: Sure.
1: Biblical Obligations of the Elders to the North Avenue Church body. As shepherds and overseers of a local church, elders are entrusted with teaching, protecting, leading, equipping, and caring for the corporate church body and her individual members. The following is an overview of the requirements for elders as spelled out within the scriptures. The elders' covenant to help train up future elders and deacons according to the criteria assigned to them in the scriptures. The elders' covenant to prayerfully seek wisdom from the Lord in guiding our church community and stewarding her resources to the best of our ability based on our study of the scriptures and our following of the Holy Spirit who inspired all scripture. The elders' covenant to care for the church and seek her growth. In truth, in love and truth, holiness and unity in the gospel. The elders covenant to provide teaching and counsel for the whole from the whole of scripture, whether that unchanging teaching is considered in season or out of season by our ever-changing culture. The elders covenant to equip the members of the church for the work of ministry. The elders covenant to be on guard against false teachers and teachings. The elders covenant to lovingly lead the process of biblical church discipline when necessary for the glory of God, the good of the one disciplined, and the health of the church as a whole. And the elder's covenant to set an example and join members in fulfilling the obligations of church membership <coughs> stated below. Let keep going, right? Yeah. Biblical obligations of the members to the North Avenue Church body. As those who have experienced the grace of a life changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to reflect the character of Christ through the pursuit of godly attitudes and actions and the rejection of those that are contrary to Scripture. The Bible refers to this reality as living by the Spirit. The requirements of this membership covenant are in no way intended as an addition to the biblical obligations of a believer. Rather, this document functions primarily as an accessible yet non-exhaustive explanation of what the scriptures teach about the obedience that saving faith produces. I covenant to submit to the authority of the scriptures as the final and decisive word on all issues of life and doctrine of behavior and belief. I covenant to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ through a regular practice of the spiritual disciplines including Bible reading, prayer, and loving fellowship with the other members of our local church. I covenant to follow the command and example of Jesus by participating in the ordinances prescribed to His church, by being baptized after my conversion as a public display of the truth of my union with Christ in His death and resurrection, by regularly remembering and celebrating the person and work of Christ through communion. I covenant to regularly participate in the life of North Avenue Church by attending weekly services, engaging in gospel-centered community, and serving the other members of this church. As Hebrews 10 says, we commit to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. I covenant to wisely steward the resources God has given me, including time, talents, spiritual gifts, and finances. This includes giving that is sacrificial, cheerful, and voluntary. I covenant to strive by the Holy Spirit's grace and power to walk in holiness in all areas of life as an act of worship to Jesus Christ. I make it my aim to put my ungodly attitudes and actions to death by the Spirit's strength. Below are a few examples of actions addressed in the scriptures. I will practice complete chastity unless married, and if married, complete fidelity within heterosexual and monogamous marriage. This means, among other things, that regardless of my marital status, I will pursue purity and fight against lust and all sexual temptation toward immoral practices such as adultery, premarital sex, homosexual behavior, pornography, and sexually perverted speech. If married, I will seek to preserve the gift of marriage and agree to walk through steps of marriage reconciliation at North Avenue Church, including meeting with the elders before pursuing divorce from my spouse. I will refrain from illegal drug use and drunkenness. I will fight my temptation to gossip. Slander and cause disunity in the church. I will forgive from my heart offenses committed against me by others because I have been forgiven of so much more by Jesus. And I guess I covenant to use my freedom in Christ to best serve and love others while resisting the temptation to abuse my liberty by presenting stumbling blocks to another. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Galatians 5.13. I covenant to submit to the discipline of God through His Holy Spirit by following the biblical procedures for church discipline where sin is evident in another, the hope of such discipline being repentance and restoration, receiving righteous and loving discipline when approached biblically by fellow believers. I covenant to do the following when I sin, confess, confess my sin to God and to fellow believers, repent and seek help to put my sin to death." I covenant to submit to the elders and other appointed leaders of the church and diligently strive for unity and peace within the church. And I covenant to do the following, should I leave the church for righteous reasons to notify the elders, to seek another church with which I can carry out my biblical responsibilities as a believer. Now, Let me just note that last part Scott just read there. Let me read it one more time.
0: So I, I covenant to do the following: Should I leave the church for righteous reasons? So two things: to notify the elders, and number two, to seek another church with, with which I can carry out my biblical responsibilities as a believer. I know this, is, this should be pretty simple or obvious, but um, we do, someone cannot leave our church to simply stop going to a church. Okay, that's that's not an option. That will actually this this may sound strange, but we will actually uh, not simply allow someone to remove their name from membership and just stop going to church. Uh, we would actually that would actually call for church discipline because uh, that would be. Actively pursuing a sinful desire. So here's one thing: uh, just, just I think it's, it, it's easy to overlook this point. If, if you're planning to either move away and go to another church in another area, or if you're planning to go to another church in Athens, that's totally fine. As long as they preach the gospel, that's totally great. We just would like to know about it. So, so we're not going to be offended. I promise you, we will not be offended if you say, "Hey, there's a church ten minutes down the street that I, I think for other reasons, I think it's better that I go there." We've had members have this happen where one guy. Uh, had a great opportunity to serve in a college ministry at Prince Avenue down the road. And he said, hey, like, can I, can I go over there? I said, absolutely. No hard feelings at all. Uh, you know, what they're doing over there is great. Please go be a part of it. So don't, we're not gonna be offended at all if you come and say, hey, we're going to another church 10 minutes down the road. We're not, it's not gonna bother us at all. But just, we wanna know about it. We want to know about it. If someone may just disappear and we can't find them and where, where are they and what's going on, just, just tell us. Like, hey, we're, we're thinking about moving our family over to this church for a ministry opportunity there, or we're moving to another state. So please let us know if you're, if you're planning to do that, and we would love to hear about it, and we are going to be totally supportive of that. Anything else about this? I know this sheet could be overwhelming with all the responsibilities. Anything about that? We're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about, we stumble, we, we don't, we're not perfect on all these things, but that's the goal, and that's what we're aiming at, and that's what we're holding each other uh, accountable to.
3: And we ask everybody to sign that. Yes. That's a, that's a someone will keep on file. Yeah, on the back of this. There's just a bit
2: of accountability there on the back. You says, I sign your name hereby, by the grace of God, vow to place myself under this covenant. Um, and it's... You know, you don't win any points with God by doing that, but it's, it's a sense of accountability, a sense of the, the real responsibility that you understand when you become a member of North Avenue Church. We, you know, when we introduced this, we all signed it along with everyone who was a member, and so, you know, that is just the expectation. It's a way of, like, kind of making it more concrete um, and not putting it up in the air. And, I mean, you know, it, it not, again, one of these things we never want to have to do it, but should something come up, where someone is in just explicit public violation of this, we can say, look, we have, and they're like, well, why are you bothering me? You signed yourself that you understood this, and this is, like, what we're doing is what you agreed that we would do should something happen. And again, that, that's the extreme end of the accountability spectrum, but it's, it's there for a reason. Like, if we're gonna be a part of a local church, um, we're, we're going to commit to what that actually means, and, you know, we're affirming that we understand that. Mark, could you go a little bit more
3: too on? And you've touched on this, but someone, let's say that there's a disagreement, and uh, they're like, "Man, I'm just read. I'm just because I don't like what you guys are thinking anymore. I'm just gonna take my name off the list." Right. Again, there's that two hand hand two hand handshake. What do yes. you call that? Yes. Yeah.
0: So, so here would be an example, and I, I mean, I know these are real scenarios that I know about. But say that there's a couple. This is a terrible situation. A couple are a member of a church, uh, and the and I think in this particular instance, the wife committed adultery on the husband. It's a terrible situation. They have kids. All this stuff is happening. The wife asks for her name to be removed from her church's membership, just removed, and then she goes to another church in the area. Now. If that were to happen to us, if a person was committing adultery and wanted to remove their name from membership to avoid church discipline, we would say, we love you too much to let that happen. We're not simply going to let your name go away from church membership because right now you're not leaving on good terms. You're leaving in a state of serious sin. So we're actually going to not let you remove your name. Uh, we're, we're going to hold on to your name, and we're going to do the very steps Jesus commands us to do, which is to go after the sheep. The sheep can't just say, hey, take my name off. It's almost like quit before you get fired. Just let me take my name off the membership. I'm just going to kind of go off and do my own thing. It's like, well, that may be the, it may make some sense in American culture, but biblically, that is not okay. We can't do that. And in which case, if that were the case, everyone would do that if they were ever in sin. They would just say, quietly remove my name, and I'll just disappear. But we, we can't, in conviction, we can't do that. Uh, we, a person must leave on, on good terms, not in a state of unrepentant sin. Is that what you're getting at, Jerry? That's
3: exactly what I'm getting at.
0: So let's go back. we got about uh, 15 minutes before we take a break. Uh, go back to the, the Nine Marks page, and we're going to start uh, ticking through the Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. This is from Mark Dever uh, in his book on this on the same subject. Uh, we'll, we'll start with number one. And, uh, Greg, could you read the first one yeah. for us?
2: Expositional preaching or expository preaching. Uh, expositional preaching, otherwise known as expository, is the investigation of a particular passage of Scripture whereby the pastor carefully explains the meaning of a passage and then applies it to the members of the congregation. The point of a sermon, then, takes the point of a particular passage. This is in opposition to the topical preaching showcased in many evangelical churches where Bible passages are woven together to support a pre-existing point.
0: Scott, a word about why we do, we tend to, at least on, during the sermons, we tend to work uh, verse by verse through books of the Bible.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's so you don't do hobby horses and stuff. I mean, we, I've talked about this before too. If you, were, if we were all of us here, if we were picking what we wanted to preach, <laughs> Jerry Edgar would preach Romans eight like every time. Like <laughs> if he was picking what he wanted to preach, and like, you you know, I would do that redeem, at school. In <laughs> school, yeah, yeah. you get to go through Sixth it.
3: Sixth grade take Romans, eighth graders take Romans, ninth graders take Romans. <laughs> See, <what>, guy, <laughs> get <it> covered. <laughs> we would
1: do hobby. All of us would be doing hobby horses. You just get repetition of the hobby horses. What's but, your hobby horse? redeeming the time would be one of my favorite things to talk about. I've preached about it two or three times at our church, and I would, I would do it again and again. I love to talk about it. It's one of my favorite subjects to talk about. Uh, so we would pick our hobby horses, and we just, but then the people wouldn't lose out. You're missing out on the whole counsel of God. So like we've talked about this before. My dad did expositional preaching. He would start, he would do a New Testament yeah. book. He preached through every single verse, and he'd go to an Old, Old Testament. Testament book. Preached through every single verse, he'd go back New to a Testament. New Testament. I mean, he just, yeah, yeah, yeah. like the, the discipline to do that. Did that, that like, 44 times. No, no, 44 yeah. times. It's just incredible. But it, what what happens is you get exposed to all the whole counsel of God. Mm-hmm. You you get to go to Ezra, like we just went through Ezra. I mean, what a gift to just be able to go to Ezra. You oh, wouldn't pick are, that for a topical series. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't <laughs> pick yeah. that for a topical series or whatever it may be. These difficult passages it forces. The minister to deal with it and the countercultural cultural stuff, stuff you have to talk about like money or whatever like it's like uncomfortable maybe but this is what the text says you've got it you got to preach it i'm like the genealogy of jesus i would never ever ever would have chosen that <laughs> passage to preach if I, I somewhere like i never would have chosen it. but mark assigned it to me because that's, we're in matthew we're gonna start matthew and i gotta do it but then you, you benefit you see things in the, in the passage and the people benefit so it's just it's so good for for a body to just you're getting exposed to the whole counsel of god rather than mm-hmm. the hobby horse stuff
2: yeah. Greg, thoughts on
1: expositional preaching?
2: Yeah, another another benefit, which it, it's kind of a subset of what you were talking about, Scott. It's like when, when we take time to work through a passage um, and we just keep going passage after passage in order, it, it, there, the, another benefit is it's helping you as the congregation know how to handle Scripture too. Um, when we don't skip over hard things, that says, hey, we're communicating what? all of scripture is valuable. Mm-hmm. It, it's not just some of it that we like, it's all of it. Um, and as we wrestle with hard text, hopefully we're demonstrating how you do that. Um, you know, Hopefully we do it humbly and at times we're like, I mean, you've said it, I've, I'm not 100% sure oh, yeah. why I'm supposed to come down on that. <laughs> and you know, like we wanna know everything 100%, but sometimes we read scripture and like, I'm not sure what to do with that and that's okay, but it's, it's we're hopefully providing a pattern and an example for how we handle the text on a consistent basis. And hopefully, it helps everyone read their Bibles better and get to know God better through that. At Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. Mm-hmm. It's all
3: God breathed, and it's and uh, and it's what thoroughly can um, um, equips us for every good work. And so, uh, we don't want to leave one word of God's inspired book um, uncovered.
0: A number of our members are at the G3 conference in Atlanta right now. If you know what that is, a, a bunch of people you may have heard of, Vody Bakum and all these guys, Steve Lawson, a bunch of different people. I think MacArthur's speaking by live stream this morning uh, over there from California. But um, so at the G3 conference last night, there was a Q&A panel with all huge Q&A with like all the guys that you, I mean, all these people you've probably heard of. And, and they got asked about expositional, what is expositional preaching? This very question. And uh, one of my favorite answers, I think they were quoting someone else, but they said, here's three word answer for what expositional preacher, preaching should be letting texts talk
3: i was
0: like that's the, the pastor should be a mouthpiece for whatever the paragraph he's preaching from says the chapter the sentence whatever it is it should feel like when you're sitting there the pastor is simply a mouthpiece for that passage It shouldn't feel like he's taking all of his own beliefs and sort of push, that's called eisegesis, putting your own beliefs in the passage and reading them out wrongly. No, it's exegesis. I'm bringing out what's in the text. I'm not eisegeting, reading in what I want to see. And so, uh, I mean, all the time when we're we're going through the Bible, I mean, there are emphases in the text that I don't even like love naturally. And I'm like, I have to make this point because Jesus is saying this or Paul is saying this. It's not even my natural inkling. I'm not even good at this point, but I have to say it because it's in the text. And there's an incredible accountability, I think, because... It's not me up there with the Bible, it's, it's like everyone has a Bible in the room, right? Everyone's looking at their Bible. So if I start cheating the text in a sermon, everyone knows I'm doing that. Like I can't get, I mean, what can I get away with? I've got 100 people holding me accountable with the Bible in their lap going, that's not what it says in Matthew nine. That's not what Ezra says. So if I try to just manipulate the text, I mean, what sentences can I avoid? It's like we're going through every sentence, so I can't dodge anything. It's right there. And if I don't address it, you know I'm not addressing it, or you know I'm manipulating the text. So it's this amazing mutual accountability where, I mean, how much can you get away with with expositional preaching? Everyone's looking at their Bible too, and they're like, uh, that's not what the text says, Pastor. Like, it says something else. And there's just nowhere to hide. I, I love that. I, there's just, you, you there's nowhere there's no to hide when the, when the Bible itself is in control of what's being said, at least ideally when the Bible's in control of what's being said. All right, number two, Uh, Scott, can you read biblical
1: theology? Yeah, biblical theology assumes that scriptures, many authors, and many books are telling one story by one divine author about Christ. Pastors too often play one note when, as it has been said, the entire Bible is a beautiful symphony. Salvation is more than being saved from debt, loneliness, or a bad marriage. The gospel is even more than the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Congregations should instead be told how every passage fits into the grand storyline of the Bible. Creation fall, redemption, new creation. Well, Greg, we're about to do a Sunday School series on this
0: mm-hmm. very issue. We're going to spend a, yeah. a lot of weeks on biblical theology. What, what exactly is this talking about?
2: Um, well, it has, like, like it says, it, it assumes that scriptures, many authors, and many books are telling one story by one divine author, and the focus of that story is Christ. Um, we are all about, when we do expositional preaching, we're all about authorial intent. What? What does the author communicate through the words and phrases and type of language that he uses? We want to discover his meaning. That's the method we follow. Like you say, let the text talk. Like that's how you do it. You you learn how to read well. Um, but as you do that, we also remember that the Bible, yes, it, it it's got all these diversity of authors, diversity of literature, and you know, written over such a long span of time. But there is a single author behind all of that, and that's God. And because there is a single author behind it all, he is telling a unified story and he intends that story to be understood in a very specific way. It's not just up for grabs, you know, what, what, what do you want it to mean, what do you, you think it means, it's what does it actually mean. Um, and so we come to, to biblical theology and this overall grand storyline of the Bible you know, there there are specific things that God has put in Scripture that help us understand what's going on. Like we're gonna be studying, we're gonna talk about the kingdom of God, how central that is, we're gonna talk about God's covenants, how God's kingdom comes through covenants. When you just look at the structure of Scripture itself, you understand how God's plan, it progresses along certain, certain key markers and certain key events and certain key people and institutions and things like that. Then you're in a position to understand what's actually going on, and that's not arrogant to say. You know, I, I'm starting to understand how the Bible fits together. That's a good thing. I mean, that's a really good thing because no matter where you go, then I mean, if you understand the the big story of the Bible, then. You're, you're much better positioned, say, for instance, if you're reading through scripture and you get you know, stuck in Leviticus, which if you've ever just started in Genesis, you know, you're great with Genesis, first half of Exodus, and then you get all those instructions for the tabernacle, and you get into Leviticus and Numbers, and you're just like, what is going on here? Um, and a lot of people derail at that point. you are like, <laughs> yes, oh, okay, I'm gonna go back to, uh, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> if you know what's going on in the big picture, then you know exactly where those things are fitting in that mm. picture and why they're there. That doesn't mean, you know, reading through Leviticus is necessarily going to be easy. It's going to have its own challenges. Yeah, it's going to have challenges, but you know where that particular puzzle piece fits. Yeah. I mean, if you think of, I mean, anybody in here like the puzzle I see a few nodded heads. Like my, my wife, my daughter, and my mother-in-law. Like Thanksgiving, Christmas, they always get these big thousand-piece puzzles, and they just work on them. I, that's not me. When you
0: get to the blue sky or the clouds, oh, you're in okay, trouble. It's,
2: it's, it's painful. But you know, you, you keep the box top out there the whole time, hmm. so that you can see that. Make sure that where you're putting these pieces is your, the picture you're creating with the pieces is the picture you see on the box top. Biblical theology gives us the box top hmm. picture, so that we make sure the pieces we're fitting together are going in the right place. That's great Greg. That's really good. Okay, we got, we got like 3 4 minutes. So let's do number 3.
1: Uh Scott, can you read that one for yeah. us? <clears throat> Biblical understanding of the gospel. There needs to be a proper understanding and necessary emphasis on the full gospel. Where many contemporary churches teach that Jesus wants to meet our felt needs and give us a healthier self-image, that is not the gospel. The gospel message is that we are sinners who have rebelled against our creator, but Jesus took the curse that was rightfully ours and all that remains is for us to have faith in him so God may credit Christ's righteousness to our account. When we de-emphasize sin and damnation to make the presentation more friendly and less offensive, we cease declaring the full gospel.
0: Scott, any thoughts on that one?
1: Yeah, I mean, I just think uh, we need, yeah, we need the full understanding of the gospel. We don't wanna fall into like easy believism type thing, uh, which is so common. Uh, And I I just think, again, it's counterculture, like talking about hell and all these things, but we wanna say what the Bible says. I remember doing a wedding uh, one time, and the, the the father bride was an atheist, and I knew that I was gonna have to present the gospel, and that I had this this fear of man crept into me before. Like I gotta talk about hell in front of this guy; he's gonna be standing right in front of me, and there's a real temptation just to lessen mm-hmm. uh, the full gospel. But I knew I, I've got to say the full gospel message. So you, you pray for strength and help, and you declare the full count. Like if you uh you've fallen in sin and if you continue in this way you you will go to hell like there is a real hell and i had to to say this but you you, there is this temptation to make the gospel seemingly more attractive to the culture but we do not want to do that we want the loving thing again is to to emphasize the full like there is real wrath coming and the loving thing is to say it and and, yeah
2: Can can i make a point um points three and four here of these nine marks are actually the underlying reason why um membership discipline discipleship and leadership uh, is so faulty in so many churches is because mm. they have abandoned a biblical understanding of the gospel and conversion. They, or they have a very weak understanding mm. of it, I'll say that. It's, mm-hmm. They haven't completely gotten rid of it in some cases, but it is so emaciated and so weak and watered down. Um, if you don't have a robust understanding of the full gospel, like you're saying, and then as we're going to see conversion, then that's going to totally affect your view of church membership. Um, if you don't have a high standard, the biblical standard for how you come to Christ and what that means, then that, that you're, you're not going to have a strong doctrine of church membership. It's your, 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 your standards are going to be a whole lot less because you're not preaching Christ in the fullness of who he is. And so three and four here especially, if we get that right, it positions us much better for membership, discipline, leadership, and growth, the way it's supposed to be. The weaker our doctrine of the gospel in conversion, the weaker our churches are, and we see that it's a, it's a it's for for lack of a better word, it's a pandemic uh, in in the spiritual life of churches in our country. Is because they, we have the, the gospel that's preached and the understanding of conversion is so watered down and weak. Um, there's no wonder our churches are so unhealthy.
0: This is a good point to end for, for a few minutes. So here's what we're gonna do. We take about a seven, eight minute break, get some coffee, walk around, whatever you need to do. More Chick-fil-A. Well, uh, more Chick-fil-A, that's always good. And then uh, we'll come back and we'll work for another 55 minutes or so. And then we will, uh, we'll, we'll break up into groups and we'll, we'll spend a few minutes at the very end uh, uh, talking to, uh, we wanna hear everyone's uh, conversion story. It, it could be pretty brief. Don't, don't feel too much pressure about this, but we'll kind of go around to the table and just hear about, get to know you a little bit and hear about your, your story. So we'll come back in about seven, eight minutes.